Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Wednesday is the feast day of Epiphany. It's, um, Epiphany is not as big in the West as it is in the East, Orthodox East. In fact, uh, it would be up there with Easter uh, as a feast day in the church calendar. And Epiphany commemorates the coming of the Magi uh, to visit Christ. It uh, commemorates the uh, revelation of the Lord and him becoming known uh, and who he is as king and as the son of God. And uh, so that feast day is uh, rotates. It's always uh, January the 6th. And so uh, it only gets celebrated, you know, roughly once every seven years. And so what the lectionary allows us to do is to bring that forward to the closest Sunday so that we can reflect on those truths and think about that story. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to talk about the visit of the Magi. And um, the title of my message this morning is The Word Did the Work. The Word Did the Work. Um, I know how familiar you are with the, with the Great Reformation. I'm sure some of you are at least aware of it through your uh, classes and history classes. Of course, it was a time of Martin Luther and John Calvin, the English reformers, and a great uh, call out, in, especially in Northern Europe, um, for the doctrine of justification by faith. In other words, we're made right and approved by God by faith, not by works or self-effort. Uh, medieval theology had gotten to be very merit-based, and you earned merit and received merit, and it became a, a burden. And you earned grace by doing the right thing. You didn't receive grace and then do the right thing because you have received grace. You earned grace. It became a great a burden to bear. And Martin Luther became one of the, uh, part of the uh, how would you put it, the pivot point, the key person who was speaking on this truth, and it began to ignite Europe. It had political effects. Had Later, it would have effects in the Thirty Years' War. It would have a, a breakup. It would break up Germany into Reformed Lutheran and Roman Catholic sections of the country. It would, uh, as you've seen, even if you've watched one of the uh, bad movies on, the, on Henry VIII, uh, you at least you can get aware of the tension and the effect that it was having on English society and on the English church. And uh, many people would come to Luther and uh, want to have dinner with him. These later talks or discussions around the table became called table talks. And they were all collated. Students would sit around the table with other people who were visiting from out of town there in Wittenberg. And they would talk to him and ask him theological questions and thoughts about what was going on in the country, thoughts about the Roman Catholic Church. It had um, announced his expulsion. And uh, his life is just a, uh, a full drama. Uh, and to me, still the, ult- the ultimate movie about his life has not been made. But as he's been sitting around uh, the table, the students would scribble in shorthand uh, his answers, and they collated these all together into a book, and it's now called Table Talks. 
And some of these talks, some of these answers, just like uh, when you're in a question and answer section at, the, at a conference, I often find more helpful than the lectures or the talks themselves because the speakers will often reveal a little bit more what's in their heart, pastorally what they're going through or personally what they've experienced. And so in the, the part of what uh, uh, started the um, Reformation was this selling of indulgences. And a guy named Tetzel went out in Germany selling indulgences that you could get so if you could buy an indulgence, you would get so many years off of purgatory. And um, out of this time, uh, purgatory is not thought is not really a hell, but it's a time of purifying the sin, supposedly that's still in your life after you died. And so you buy these indulgences either for yourself or for relatives. They use the funds to help build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. A lot of people objected to this, not only theologically, but taking all this money out of Germany and sending it to Italy. And, and oftentimes this was uh, the priests who, who raised this money were not the most godly. And so Luther was asked um, about this, and he, wrote, and he said, Take me, for instance. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, that was the old way of saying Roman Catholics, but never by force. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Emsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never did a prince or an emperor did so much damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. I had wanted to start trouble. I could have started a little game at the diet of worms. That even the emperor couldn't have been safe. But what would it have been? A mug's game. I did nothing. I left it to the word. It's a bit, uh, it, what he's saying is, a lot of people are saying, you did all these great things. You did all these challenges. You stirred up all this stuff. How did you do it? And basically his response is, I didn't do it. I wasn't trying to create controversy. I wasn't trying to create conflict. I wasn't trying to uh, challenge the Roman Catholic Church. As the word was being preached, as it, had been, uh, as it had been written, it began to penetrate hearts. It began to change lives. It began to do its work. And the word did the work and changed and transformed Europe. And those of us who are in this room today are still feeling the effects of that commitment as we do have believe in the evangelical stream within the three streams of the church charismatic evangelical and liturgical luther's stamp is still on that stream so when I, i'm going to throw that out right now and we're going to get back to it toward the conclusion but that's what i want to throw out to you how in this passage is the word doing the work and what is it that exactly mary is doing the last three or four talks I've given, and I've kind of focused on her as a model disciple. And I again want to focus on her in this passage. We'll spend a lot of time talking about the Magi and trying to get the story straight. But as we get to the conclusion, I want you to think about that, that phrase as we're going through. How, what did the Word, and how did it do its work? And how did Mary respond? Okay, so let's look at Matthew 2. Now, uh, uh, as Tim Keller put it in a sermon I listened to this week, he said that uh, you don't know as much about the Magi as you think you do. You don't know as much about the three kings, supposedly, that came and visited Jesus as you think you do. And the reason why he says that is because the, the nativity story, the Christmas story, has been compressed or telescoped 
You know, you have a nativity scene, you have um, a children's pageant, and you have the Magi standing there uh, worshiping the baby on the night of his birth, okay, in the stable. And you have three kings, okay. We're going to look at the story and we're going to see they didn't come till later. They weren't necessarily three kings, though they would have had a lot of influence over kings. Um, it wasn't necessarily three of them. There were three gifts, but not necessarily three magi, probably more. And what were their duties and who were they? And when did they come? Okay. So uh, I was reading recently that the events of the Lord of the Rings took, over, took place over 30 years and that the, move, the part that the movie focuses on takes a year and a half of time in the Lord of the Rings. Yet when you watch the movies, they have to put in so many events so close together that it feels like one thing's happening right after the other. It's called telescoping or compressing a story to get all the events in. And oftentimes we do these nativity scenes, we, we're telling the story and they get all compressed in. And oftentimes we don't realize just how distinct an event this particular um, visit is of the Magi to the baby Jesus. So let's look at it for a little closer and then we'll draw some uh, biblical truth from it. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came from Jerusalem. So Magi, first of all, are astrologers, sorcerers, magicians, and religious people, all combined into one group. They're sort of the group that Daniel engaged in in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, when they're trying to interpret dreams. This would be uh, ancient intelligentsia. These would be the people who are supposedly knowing and understanding events and being able to forecast what of what's going to happen based on what they're gauging and understanding and their research and their stars uh, and their magic tricks. Okay, This would be people that normally Jews would have nothing to do with because they're considered almost like, in our day, they would be almost like considered uh, a cultist. Yeah, we have these Magi coming from the east, probably Persia, and uh, they're asking a question. Where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We saw his star. From their calculations and from their background, they knew enough that there would be a revelation of the Messiah. They didn't know the particular place, but this manifestation, physical manifestation, is leading them and pointing to them to this king. Now we know from astronomy uh, that three times in about the year that Jesus would have been born that Saturn and Jupiter lined up and created this huge star in the sky that may have been the sign that they saw. Okay. But what we know is, is that just from their worldly calculations and from their study of the stars, they're, they're being attracted toward Jerusalem. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Well, I would be disturbed too if someone is coming from the east, which always was considered a threatening place. The Persians were always considered, or Parthians were considered a threat to the Roman Empire. And they're telling you that there's another king that's coming and it's been born, yet you're the king standing there. So you feel a threat coming. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where was the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. So the word of the Lord gives them a specific place where Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be born. So there are limitations to what the Magi knew, but once they got to Jerusalem, the scribes and Pharisees were able to describe to them from Micah 5-2 that this is exactly where the Messiah was expected to be from. So the word was doing its work. It was confirming, it was guiding, it was directing, it was finalizing. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. This was not a sincere desire to worship or to show the devotion to God. This was uh, wanting the knowledge of where this child would be, this threat, so that I can kill him. Probably since the Magi was from the east, they didn't know how bad a person Herod was, how easily intimidated he was. He's known in history of killing his own sons because he, po- they, he perceived them as posing a threat to his throne. He wiped out whole sections of people, and he was easily intimidated and, and heavy-handed in all that he did. So they followed the logical consequence. As Magi coming from the east, we would assume that the Messiah would come out of the biggest city. So we're going to go to the biggest city and ask questions. The answer we get is, he's not from the biggest city. The Messiah is not going to be there. He's in obscurity. It's in a small town called Bethlehem. Here he called the Magi secretly and found out this information. In verse 9, they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. There's been a lot of speculation of the years and studies. I know there's a recent film out as to what's the nature of the star. Some say it's a natural occurrence. Others say it's supernatural guidance, like of the pillar of fire for the, for the Israelites through the uh, Red Sea. But the important thing is, is the Lord is leading and guiding a Gentile group of Gentile occultist to Jesus. Notice verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, didn't say coming to a stable, just coming to a house. Okay. So more than likely, we're looking at some time has passed since the events of the birth And they're living either in the house that owned the stable that Jesus was born in, or they're living in a different house. Jesus is probably anywhere from one to two years old here, because we know Herod later gets intimidated and decides to kill every child under two years old in Bethlehem. We see that in the next passage. This event is occurring anywhere from a half a year, six months to two years later from his birth. When they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshipped him. Isn't that the strangest thing? you got scribes and Pharisees who've been studying the word of God with great thoroughness. They were able to know in their scope of Bible study that the Messiah was going to come from Micah 5-2, from Bethlehem. Yet when these This huge entourage, these magi would have been maybe a a band of 100 to 200 people show up and looking for this child, they don't join them. 
They're scared and intimidated with Herod. In other words, the people who are supposed to know the word best ignore Jesus the most. The people who, who understood the word the least but took it at face value when it said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem worship the first. And here, at this time in Israel's history, Israel had become very uh, self-important. It took its chosenness by God as a privilege, looking down on Gentiles, seeing them as second class. That whole word Gentile means anybody that's not us, anybody that's not a Jew. That's what that means. It's, it's the word where we get ethnic, but it doesn't mean quite like ethnic group like we mean it today, but it's the word, Greek word, ethnic, and it just means anybody that's not a Jew. So anybody that's not like us, you're outside the group. Yet it's the Gentiles who worship, not the scribes and Pharisees. Not, uh, you know, King Herod had mixed race. He was Edomian, Edomian not true, truly Jewish, but there should have been a response from Jerusalem. There wasn't. And that should tell us in our hearts that sometimes we can get caught up in church stuff. We can get caught up in study, but our hearts are not sold out to Christ. And yet those from the outside can see the value of this precious Jesus. And they come, and it says they were overjoyed in the house. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. This is how serious they took it. They saw him as the king. When you visit a king, you bring gifts. The gifts they brought, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, may have been the very gifts that were stolen from the temple when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. When Jerusalem and Judea were taken into exile in the late 600 BC, they, Daniel tells us that all the instruments and all the sacred vessels were taken from Babylon and he saw them drinking out of them. There's a possibility that some of this, uh, this wealth that's being brought to Christ, this gold, incense, and myrrh, is possibly the very same stuff that was stolen and being brought, being brought back to the true king. And this is also telling us that this little word, in a, and the, the symbolism is great, but the practicality is even more important for this mom. It's funding them financially. It's going to fund them. These poor Nazarenes who was able, only able to give a turtle dove sacrifice when Jesus was dedicated to the temple that we saw last week now are financially well off and able to provide. Let's flip with me for a second. <clears throat> Let me show you how just how important this is. This is uh, Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, Shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you. His glory appears over you. The nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. It's a promise from Isaiah that when Israel is restored and brought back out of exile, that the nations will be flocking to her. 
why will they be flocking to her? Because Jesus will be reigning as Messiah. First, uh, go down to uh, verse 5. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth from the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover the land. Young camels of Midian, Ephah, all from Sheba will come bearing what? Gold and incense, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All the Keter's flocks will be gathered to you. It's fulfilling a word. This visit of the Magi is fulfilling the word of the Lord in Isaiah 60, that the nations will come flocking to the, to the Messiah and they will bring great gifts, kingly gifts. Now turn with me to uh, Psalms. Um, Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him, and the kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him, and the nations will serve him. Magi weren't true kings, but they, they were advisors like a president's cabinet. And many of them served dual roles within the administration like you see with Daniel. And these... Magi had come and bowed down and had brought kings and fulfilled these prophetic words that Christ would be exalted and the Gentiles would be drawn to Jerusalem once again. And the fact that you're sitting here this morning tells us that it's true. Every one of us in this room that I know of is Gentile. None of us are Jewish, and we've all been drawn, drawn to the king, the ultimate temple. And so the Jedi, I mean the Jedi, the Magi, uh, you can tell we've been marching, uh, trying to catch up India on the Mandalorian. Um, uh, the Magi, that would be cool though if the Jedi did fall in worship, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, and uh, so their, their gifts of gold and incense are more significant. As significant as they fulfill the word of the Lord. So a couple of things we want to notice. Wise men bow, but not the priests and the scribes. So there's true worship. He's the true king, not the tyrant in the palace. Part of what Matthew's trying to set up here is a contrast. He wants you to see the contrast between the king of kings, who's been exalted as Messiah, who's living in this obscure Bethlehem town, and the tyrant that's in the palace in Jerusalem. And that does not love the Lord. So true worship is going on because the Magi have come and they're bowing out of the sincerity of their heart, bringing the wealth of the nations to Jesus while the scribes and Pharisees sit in Jerusalem having the knowledge of Micah 5.2, yet not acting on it. We know that the, Jesus is the true king. We also, there's a comparison going on. I can I don't want to go too long with it. Is Jesus, Matthew's also trying to show us that Jesus is a true Solomon. Some of the same phrasing and wording when the queen of Sheba came and visited Solomon is being used here. So the wealth and wisdom that Solomon received from her, and yet he failed and, and uh, worshipped other gods, we have the true Solomon who's receiving the wealth of the nations 
and yet he's consistently walking in the will of the Lord and willing to lay down his life as a servant king and uh, die for our sins. We see that uh, also that there is a true city, a true temple, and that Jesus is this temple. The gifts of the temple are returning to the temple. True worship where heaven and earth meet will no longer be found in a building, but will be found in a person. And the gifts that once were in the uh, physical temple are now being restored to the true temple, Jesus Christ. So what did Mary do in this passage since we're doing a series on Mary? It never mentions her saying a thing. Why? Because she was letting the Word do the work. There'd be a temptation if you have this child and you've had these prophecies, this Anna and Simeon prophecies. Okay, You've had these shepherds come and announce. You've had people... Uh, Praise the fact that this child has been born. There would be a temptation in, hu in your humanness to try to make it happen. God's given this promise. We need to go now and fix it and make it work. Just like Abraham. I got this promise now that I'll have a son. Doesn't look like it's happening, so we'll go out and make it happen. And we come up with Hagar and Ishmael in that disaster. There would be a temptation to say, God's given us all this promise. He's the Messiah. We need to make the Gentile, make it known to the Gentiles. So we'll, you know, we'll uh, rent a bunch of advertising on Facebook. We'll put up billboards. We want you to point and see this child is now the king of the world, the king of kings and lord of lords over Jews and Gentiles. Yes, there is a proper place for advertising. There's a proper place for making yourself known. But in this particular place, Mary felt no need to make it happen because God was doing it. The Word was working. Micah 5, 2 was working. The promises of God were working. And all she had to do was trust them. She didn't have to make Jesus known, make people, convince people Jesus was the Messiah. The Word was working in their hearts, and it drew these, these magi, all the way from Persia, probably hundreds of them, to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it was the word that brought about the fulfillment of the word. Not human machinations, not plans and trickery, not manipulation. It was the word that did the work. And so what's surprising to me when I read this account is how little it, she was holding him in her lap. She was letting the word of God do the work. And the nations were being drawn to her. It would be a temptation to, for, to lapse into fear and anxiety, to make God's promises happen. But she were, trusted the word and let the word do the work. We have been saying for three or four weeks now that Mary was a model disciple, and she's considered that by all the branches and all the traditions of the church. And she's becoming for us, again, a model example of what it means to be a disciple in trusting the Lord with money. The Lord provided her the funds. Trusting her the Lord with God's promises. Trusting the Lord with the baby getting proper attention because it 
we know from the prophetic word that he is the king of kings. He's the Messiah. And she's trusting the Lord that the baby will receive proper worship. There are times, this past year has been a difficult season. I learned last night that now a fifth friend or acquaintance has passed away in the last three weeks. Okay. And we all are tired of wearing masks, you know, and we're all tired of, uh, uh, of uh, social distancing. And we've seen a lot, and we see our country in turmoil, as we'll see again this week. We need to pray not only for for the Georgia primary, but also for the Electoral College for the first time in my life. Any, nobody, someone is actually cares about the Electoral College and knows what it actually is and what it does. You know, all of a sudden it's just heightened importance over this meeting that everyone took for granted. We don't know what this year will hold, but we can know one thing. We can trust the Lord who will be faithful to us. And as we rely on his word and trust his word, it will work. I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to manipulate it. I don't have to make God's promises work. The word will do the work. My goal is to know the word, trust the word, love the word, and know Jesus through the word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you did the work through the word and you drew and you um, drew the magi to Jesus from great distances that this prophecy might be fulfilled that the Gentile kings and the Gentile leaders would come and worship at his feet and adore him as the true Messiah. We thank you, Lord, that we're they're just an example or uh, forerunners for us. Because, Lord, we are Gentiles, and, Lord, we're thankful that you have drawn us by your word to you and that when you, we have found salvation by faith. We thank you and help us to be confident this year that your word will do the work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.